This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, this is episode 109 of the Travel Writing World podcast, and today I'm speaking with Thomas Bird about his new book, Harmony Express, Travels by Train Through China. We talk about Thomas's new book, of course, and the development and history of China's rail network, freelance writing in China in the early 2000s, China's diversity, and his advice for, quote, writing for the ages. That and a whole lot more in today's episode, which we'll jump right into. I'm here with Thomas Bird. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So I invited you on to talk about your your new book, Harmony Express, Travels by Train Through China, um, which was, I think, just published, if I'm not mistaken, as as of the time of recording, October 2023. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, good. Yeah. So you're a contributor to the South China Morning Post and other publications, and you've written and you've written uh, guidebooks on Asian destinations. But for the sake of uh, context, how would you, you know, describe your creative journey? Like, how did you come to report on Asia and uh, China? So I arrived in China in 2005, and like many uh, of my generation, I arrived as an English teacher. It was a kind of rite of passage uh, career path on how to get into uh, working and living in East Asia. Some people stayed in education, and but many of us uh, branched out. And um, during that period, 2005 to, uh, to, well, I did a master's degree 2007, 2008. So, um, so for two and a half years, most of my travel in China was done during the public holidays when you were given a vacation uh, during May, during Spring Festival, uh, and I would take the the train. I mean, China, even then, was a, a railway country. It was the principal means of getting from province to province. Um, but the trains then were very different from what the trains would become after the 2008 Olympics, when they began to construct their their high-speed rail network. Um, To give you an idea, they were almost always overcrowded. Uh, The bathrooms were in various states of horror. Uh, There was cigarettes, uh, peanut shells, bird seeds, just carpeting the floor. Uh, the habit of buying a ticket for one seat and then pushing a family onto that was very common. So it was pretty arduous stuff, great fun from a sort of young person's adventurous mm-hmm. travel standpoint. Um, but it was it was tough getting around the world's most populous country. We have to think that back then in 2005, China was nominally poor. Uh, its economy its GDP was smaller than that of Great Britain's, uh, yet it's the country itself is vastly larger. Um, but it was developing at an extraordinary rate. Um, 
So from my personal career, I gravitated towards publishing and I had an apprenticeship. Well, what I what I refer to as my apprenticeship in journalism uh, at a free expat lifestyle magazine that would be left in coffee shops and and bars that foreigners frequented. And it was basically everyone did everything. You did the sports page, the business page, the food and drink, the fashion. Uh, but I took control of the travel page and I made the Pearl River Delta my business and my interest. Mm. Uh, so I would uh, travel around uh, from Guangzhou and Shenzhen to Zhuhai, Jiangmen, Foshan. And despite it being this kind of manufacturing Goliath, it was also peppered with just historical interest and uh, fascinating uh, sites, um, ranging from Bruce Lee's ancestral home to the watchtowers of Kaiping uh, to the Dapung Fortress, which was a 600-year-old Ming fortress that was developed on the coast of Shenzhen to fight off Japanese pirates. So even from that small piece of China that I found myself working in and writing about, albeit at a very superficial level, uh, you don't have to go far or dig that deep to realize that China's just so interesting uh, mm -hmm. as a writer and a traveler. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I left the magazine in 2013, I just wanted to broaden my canvas uh, and make the entire country my my subject rather than just one piece of the South, albeit a very busy, populous and interesting part of the South. So this uh, free expat magazine publication, what was the name of that? Uh, so it was called That's PRD, Pearl River Delta. It's originally called That's Guangzhou, but it expanded to include Shenzhen. Um, and they also had That's Beijing and That's Shanghai. The head office was in Shanghai when I worked there. But, you know, I, I think this gives a sense as well of China's economic clout post the Olympics and post the economic crisis in the West. Don't forget, you know, uh, the US and the United Kingdom were in really poor shape in, in 2009, 2010. And China was just able to absorb so many foreigners. Many of them came as teachers, but many also came as entrepreneurs, um, as musicians and entertainers. Just anything that uh, they they wished to do, China seemed to have a place for them. Um, so these expat magazines just um, bloomed through the major cities. I think at some point Shanghai had four of them. So mm. four English language magazines in a city that doesn't actually speak English. Yeah, uh, wow. it's, it's, it shows how many foreigners were there uh, at that point. Um, nowadays, those magazines, I mean, there's certainly nowhere near as many foreigners in China as there was then. Uh, but also uh, smartphone technology kind of makes them a bit redundant. Yeah. Uh, their main sell point, why you'd carry it around everywhere. I say sell point, they were free, of course. Uh, but the, the main reason you'd carry one round in your back pocket was because it had listings in Chinese and English. So you could show it to a taxi driver. Well, 
nowadays with Google Translate or, or, or whatever, you don't really need that. Yeah, that seems to be the the trend in, in publishing uh, globally, I guess, uh, not just in, in China with, you know, the demise of print and the um, ascendancy of kind of digital and online um, publications. Was was uh, That's PRD, was that your first break as a, a writer? So I'd freelanced, I, you know, I was really hustling. So in those days, there was a lot of tech companies. You know, Huawei was emerging in Shenzhen mm-hmm. and, and companies like it. And you could get copy editing jobs pretty easily. Everyone seemed to want to develop their website. So I spent a lot of time writing copy for, uh, for example, a Chinese language school that was teaching foreigners and wanted uh, content for that. Um, I did a few pieces for the Shenzhen Daily, which was a local communist rag. <laughs> um, and then that initially took me on as a freelancer. And eventually uh, I got a job as a, an editor. I also edited for a while a, a cultural website called Bai Tai, which means cabbage in Chinese, um, which was the invention of an eccentric French entrepreneur uh, who remains a friend to this day. Um, But at that time, China was so open and there were so many foreigners that websites, magazines, journals were popping up left, right and center and and often dying within six to 12 months. But everyone was was really, you know, it was it was the Wild West or the Wild East. Um, (laughs) So yeah, everyone was 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 trying their hand at it. Yeah. So you originally went to China to to teach English, basically, and then you get kind of swept up in this kind of world of uh, writing and and doing copy in English for a variety, you know, hustling in terms of you know just hustling, trying to make a living with flexing your English language skills, and um, and then on your breaks you would basically travel the country by train and was that i guess if i'm understanding you correctly was that where your original fascination with china's trail network began through through that experience so my first train journeys as i said were quite arduous because i had to do them during national holidays uh-huh. and that meant when everybody else was taking a vacation as well so um, completely packed very mm-hmm. difficult to get a ticket um, and then when I worked for the magazine, I traveled a lot, but I see. region regionally in the Pearl River Delta, uh, because it was focused. My focus was on local travel. Um, but what became apparent was as I updated the news section of the magazine every month, there would be another train station that had opened Guangzhou South, Shenzhen North. The railway from Zhuhai to Guangzhou. Uh, there would be a new subway line, and I was like, "Wow, they're really building a public transport infrastructure based on rail." And having come from a country that invented the railway and had a, you know, a strong sentimental attachment to the railway, I. St- I'd still lived in an age where railways were struggling, where lines were being closed, where governments were moving from a 
dysfunctional nationalized system to an even more dysfunctional privatized system mm. and wondering how Great Britain could sort of revive its railways, if at all. Um, they almost seemed redundant to many people. We lived in the age of the automobile and railways were a 19th century, early 20th century uh, technology. And here was China just building. And there were political reasons for that. For example, um, they released a lot of money after the 2008 financial crisis to build infrastructure because um, they'd seen what happened in the West and they didn't want to see the same thing happen in China. But also, I think being a, you know, a centralized, you know, a highly centralized state, they were able to plan and envision a network in a way that um, democracies where governments may stay for just one term mm -hmm. and where regions have a lot more autonomy will struggle these days. Um, so China was uniquely positioned. Plus, you know, frankly speaking, they just had money to burn. The economy was 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 the fastest growing economy, not in the world, but in the history of the world. And that translated into uh, the fastest growing high speed rail network uh, mm -hmm. the world has ever seen. So help help me kind of paint this picture in, in my head, because uh, you mentioned the 2008 Olympics and the kind of public works investments following the 2008 kind of global crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, you mentioned coming to China, I think, in 2005. Um, so like when, when you entered into China and you start to notice like all these new kind of tracks being laid and these new stations kind of popping right. up out of nowhere, seemingly, what was what was like what was the trail situation like in China um, prior to this massive investment in high speed rail? Was it just like this kind of, you know, web of slower rail tracks? So that's, around a, that's, a great, that's a great question. It's actually something that, that I that ended up exploring some of the chapters of the book. So when the, the world had its great railway boom, mm -hmm. um, beginning in Europe and then spreading to North America, to Russia, um, some countries, including the United States and Russia, for example, used the railway. Uh, not just as a principal uh, public transport infrastructure. They used it to build the state, to claim territory. You build the railway there, and that becomes America, okay? Uh, the Russians built their Trans-Siberian uh, at, at great hardship and great loss because it was a way of delineating their power in the in the Far East regions. Um, China resisted the railway. Uh, it was widely perceived that it would um, upset the ancestors sleeping in their graves, that it would disturb cosmic harmony. And when the British in colonial Shanghai decided that they were going to build a railway, the Chinese bought it off them and tore it up. Hmm. So there was real resistance to the railway. Um, and that continued until uh, around 1895 when when China lost a war with Japan. 
And Japan had had the opposite attitude to to Western technology, um, which was to absorb as much as possible, including transport um, and weaponry. So they were. Uh, it was very easy for them to overwhelm China with their new arsenal of Western kit. Uh, so the Chinese looked at this and thought, okay, we do need to build railways. We have fallen behind in the industrial age. Uh, but they didn't have the technological know-how. So they allowed uh, certain colonial powers to build railways. The Russians built a railway through Manchuria. Um, the Brits built the railway from Hong Kong to Canton. The French built a railway through Yunnan. And what happened was when these colonial powers built the railways, they maintained the railways and they um, controlled the local economy. So it was piece by piece, cut, chopping up the China pie, as the uh, as the saying of the day went. Um, China eventually did construct its own railway uh, from Beijing to uh, Jiangjiakou uh, by Jiang Tianyou. He's now considered the godfather of the Chinese railways and a national hero. Um, and that was completed in 1911, the same year that the uh, Qing dynasty collapsed. Um, so during the Republic of China that followed, uh, they continued to build railways. But China in those days was not far off being a failed state. Many of the regions were run by warlords and separatist factions. That's a pretty difficult uh, environment to build railways. And it wasn't until 1949 that the communists took power that they were able to sort of imagine uh, a national grid. So um, we actually see a trend in the 20th century, which is that communist countries uh, in the wake of the Second World War typically built more railways and Western democracies typically built less and, and actually got rid of a lot of the railways that they already had. Uh, that said, because of China's inherent uh, backwardness, uh, that period it was a very poor country. And also uh, Chairman Mao's rule was a very chaotic period. You had the, the Great Leap Forward and, and the Cultural Revolution. Uh, that meant that the railway network they built was technologically backward it was mostly you know steam rail um mm -hmm. if you can imagine and in the 1980s when china opened up the only people that went to china to take a train uh, was uh, steam enthusiasts people who had <laughs> nostalgia for old trains and that uh, and and that incidentally is the the same time that Paul Theroux, the, the famous travel writer, went to China and, and wrote his book, Riding the Iron Rooster. Fast forwarding to when I was writing my magazine and seeing the first stages of high-speed infrastructure being built, um, I would go down to Hong Kong to buy books. It was difficult to buy English language books in China because of censorship and, and other reasons. Um, and I would always search the shelves for books about China Railway. And the only one that was there was Theroux's book, 
which is a great book, but it was also 30 years out of mm-hmm. date. So I guess then that, that really planted the seed that I need to write Riding the Iron Rooster for the High Speed Age or mm-hmm. try to. You have some um, statistics in, in the early chapters of your book. Um, and it, it's just a little line here that I that I pulled out. It's not like the entire book is about statistics. Mm-hmm. It's a narrative, right? But right. Um, you, you'd mentioned that um, in China, the rail network has 139,000 total kilometers of rail mm. and 35,000 kilometers of high-speed rail now, which mm. is more than the rest of the world combined. So I'm, I'm looking at this in a peri- and I'm thinking like, wow, in a period of like 15, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, um, China has just really kind of built this quite incredible high-speed rail network throughout this enormous space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it's, it, it was like every month they inaugurated a new track and it really was quite transformative to how the country lived and breathed. So as I said, China was already a railway country, Um, even though it had invested heavily in airports and was building a lot of highways, the railway was the, the, the infrastructure that connected the provinces, but it it could take uh, 18 hours to get from Beijing to Shanghai. And now mm. it takes five. Right. And maybe there would be three or four trains that, that went a day. And now there's one every 25 minutes. They have the longest high-speed railway line in the world, which is uh, from Hong Kong to Beijing. But it actually continues all the way up to Harbin in the northeast, if you follow the, the railway corridor. So it's really quite extraordinary what they built. Of course, the Chinese government has the power to to build in ways that other governments don't. So if they want to build uh, a high-speed rail line through Mr. Chen's farm, Mr. Chen's going to be offered some compensation and he better take it because that's all he's going to get. It's He's not going to be able to say, hey, this is my ancestral land. And you know, if there's a mountain in the way, there's not going to be, or it's unlikely that there's going to be any sort of um, uh, environmental investigation. They're just going to build a tunnel and go straight through. Um, so it seems like it's a um, kind of radical shift between the um, kind of this early hesitancy to build rail due to the perceived encroachment, you know, the, the perceived destruction of, you know, the spirits and the harmony of, of the land and not to disturb the spirits living um, in, in the ground to now just kind of doing whatever they want um, without I, that kind of narrative. Is that something that that you're perceiving or seeing? I think that's just a great observation, Jeremy. So basically, the Communist Party, you know, one of its foundational um, uh, ideas is, is anti-colonial, that China is a victim. It was a victim of colonial powers, the United States, France, Russia, mm-hmm. Japan, uh were all biting into it and they were using the technology of the day to do that which was the railway um and uh china's obsession that it was humiliated 
implies that it's obsessed with catching up and even surpassing us. Mm -hmm. And I think that informed this just, you know, deep entrenched desire to have this railway infrastructure that would be the envy of, of, of their, you know, perceived competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there's definitely railways to nowhere, bridges to nowhere, because in, in some instances they were over constructing. But I think at, at its root, and especially as they've abandoned sort of socialism as an ideology, I th- I think it's about being the best and presenting it as in that way. And uh, the, the high-speed train just became emblematic of China's rise. Uh, you would see it um, you know, used in propaganda posters all over the country. And when you go into railway stations, you'd see uh, videos or films running showing the, 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 the Harmony Express dashing through vast and dynamic landscapes. Wow. So uh, you mentioned uh, Paul Theroux, and um, I think, you know, like many good train books, right, they're not necessarily about the trains per se or the the rail networks per se, but about the people who ride the trains, right? And so um, I was wondering if you can maybe uh, talk talk to this point um, in in your new book, like um, what were the kinds of people that you met on the train? Like I get this image of, of China, I, I, I collect money, you know, currency, mm-hmm. and I have these old kind of Chinese banknotes. And I guess they're not that old. Um, but what's fascinating is they have like, you know, the different ethnic groups throughout China. So I, you know, perceive China to be this kind of vast territory with, you know, this enormous amount of, you know, uh, of ethnic diversity. And I'm wondering to what extent you're, you, through your reporting and through your work, were able to kind of really kind of experience the diversity of China through its high, high-speed rail network? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, firstly, I didn't just take the, the, the high-speed trains. Okay. I, uh, as I, the, the more I took the high-speed train, the more I realized that they were you know, quite expensive and also slightly sterile travel experience compared with the the old green trains that were still running across China. I realized that with two Chinas, that there was this kind of first tier Beijing, Shanghai, high-speed China. And then there was this second and third tier cities wired together by these old uh, slow class of green trains. But on the green trains, you'd meet much more interesting people. You'd meet migrant workers. Um, uh, you'd you'd meet... Um, struggling entrepreneurs and because the train was slow and you usually had a bed they'd spend more time drinking tea and telling your their story than somebody would making a high-speed dash from one city to the other as for the ethnic minorities so 92 percent of chinese people subscribe as being of the the main han okay uh, group Uh, but there's a lot of diversity within within the han um the other eight percent um, is is split up amongst the Tibetans, the Mongols, the Uyghurs, uh, the Miao, the Wa. So I certainly encountered a lot of ethnic diversity in Yunnan, which is mm-hmm. one of the the most ethnically diverse uh, provinces. 
Uh, I went up into Qinghai and the Tibetan plateau. And so I entered the Tibetan world, which incidentally has been wired to the Chinese grid via uh, what they call the Sky Train, the world's highest train, um, which reminded me a lot of the Great Wall of China or the Yangtze River Dam, as in China's always going to build the biggest, mm -hmm. uh, no matter what the cost, um, in order to secure its territory or its perceived territory. Um, China presents a very homogenous image of itself, that we all speak Mandarin, that we all love the Communist Party, uh, and we all ride high-speed trains. And, and the reality is China's an incredibly diverse country. Um, and also there's a lot of tension between certain minority groups. I certainly encountered in my journeys um, tension between uh, the Hui Muslims in 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 Yunnan and the, and the Han that lived there, and that was part of a broader crackdown on Islam in China that was playing out while I was researching my book. Um, and in some of the frontier zones, like Manchuria, um, the, the Manchu, are, you know, almost in, you know, indistinguishable from from the Han. Um, but in other places like Inner Mongolia, you know, it remained Chinese Mongolia, at least when I was there. Um, that's the striking thing about China is it, it's desperate to build all its cities to look the same mm -hmm. and get everyone eating the same. And, you know, there's, there's even they'll say woman Zhongguoren, we Chinese is like a, 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 a preface to what they're about to say. But in reality, what I found when I was speaking to people on and off the rails is that there's, like anywhere else, a range of opinions, a range of ideas, and, mm -hmm. and a great variety of ways of thinking about oneself and the world around them. Interesting. So you gave us a sense of kind of the, the territory, the, the you know, the vast kind of cultural territory um, of China. Um, walk us through, if you, if you can, very quickly. I know we're running short of time on time here, but um, you know the, the the places that you visit for the book or in the book. You know, give us a sense of like where you're traveling, um, where you're traveling to within within China. Yeah. Okay. So I, I effectively spent, I think, four or five years riding around China on the rails. Um, writing guidebooks and articles for the South China Morning Post and others. And during lockdown, I had all these notes. So I came to think of the book as, as several epic railway journeys and almost thematic chapters. So I traveled through Guangdong province uh, along the coast up to Xiamen. And that's like, you know, viewed as Han Chinese, but uh, the range of dialects and languages and and also, the range of uh, the difference of in levels of development between first tier cities and and second and third tier cities is quite extraordinary. Just through one province, um, I travelled uh, through Yunnan and I traced the French railway uh, all the way to Vietnam because I was interested in China's sort of colonial experience. Um, I took a train ride from Chengdu to Wenzhou 
following the Yangtze because it's China's largest river and an extraordinary amount of people live off its water and and that's that seemed to be a potent place to 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 trace i went right up into the northern regions so uh what had been japanese manchu war and also russia's semi-colonial acquisitions in cities like uh, harbin and, and dalian i went up and explored that region which is now considered China's rust belt and, and has economically fallen far behind the rest of the country. Uh, and I conclude the book in in Tibet um, for two reasons. One is because Thiru concludes his his travels there, but also when Thiru went through, he sort of famously said, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Tibet is so lovely is that it it doesn't have a railway. <laughs> And of course, yeah. Uh, in now, it now does, it, it, and you really see the railway as a engine of uh, state control. You know, of of mapping what you own, um, or what you what you believe you own. So it was it was interesting. It was very difficult to get into Tibet, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. We're going to have to leave it at that because we're um, about out of time now. But um, I haven't finished uh, reading through the book, but what I've read um, so far, um, it's a fascinating book. Um, and I, I love following you on your journey. So I wish you uh, all the best with this new book. And uh, yeah, safe travels. And where can we find you online? And uh, give us some more information about your online. Okay, yeah, I'm not much of a blogger, um, but Instagram, Thomas Bird Writer, Facebook, Thomas Bird Writer would probably be the best place to find me. And the book's available Amazon US and Amazon UK or from Earnshaw Books directly from their website. And this uh, Earnshaw Books, uh, I looked into them. Fascinating publisher, that a very niche uh, specialist publisher that has focused on uh, Chinese publications, no? The publications about social issues in China in English. Yeah, China and the broader Greater China region. He actually yeah. began by republishing classic China travel logs from the 19th century. So... Yeah, it was a nice place. It was a nice fit with my book. You know, it's good to see, you know, these niche in independent publishers, you know, keeping keeping the dream alive, right? Publishing interesting books, publishing out of print books. Um, because, you know, there it seems like these mainstream publishers are really interested in like they have this pro profit motive. Um, and um, yeah, in independent publishers are, are the way to go in many respects. So that's cool to see. I mean, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there that it's there. Uh, you know, the state of publishing the way it is with these just Goliath publishing houses con controlling, you know, main mainstream reader reading habits, that it's these these small indie publishers that are, are going to put interesting stuff out there. Also, I, I, you know, I should say that, that the Earnshaw books is run by Graham Earnshaw, who himself has written some travel logs traveling through China. And when I gave him my manuscript, it was outrageously long. It was like an encyclopedia of 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 rail travel in China. And he and he he said, you know, 
cut out the you know the politics cut out a lot of the the references to the news stories of the day unless it's really relevant in giving context you don't need it you're writing for the ages and i think that's a great um lesson for all aspiring travel writers is to consider that um uh, why do we read books from the 1930s or the 1980s about uh, a different place and a different time? Well, be because they were writing for the ages. So we can know what Cuba was like in the 1950s or wh what Brazil was like in the 1970s. And I think that's important. You know, some of the most boring parts of any old travelogue that you read is when they suddenly start referencing the prime minister or president of the day and what he <laughs> or she did or said. And you're like, well, that's this just a minor news story. Imagine if all the way through riding the Iron Rooster, you know, Paul Theroux had been talking about what Reagan had, you know, what, what had been Reagan's policy in that year, or it just, it wouldn't have any relevance with the, the contemporary reader. But you read that book and it's still interesting mm -hmm. because that was China then. You know, I think it's really important to remember that time is a place. Mm -hmm. Right for the ages. I love that advice. It reminds me of uh, what Charles Baudelaire said um, in a completely different context. Um, but he's talking about a painter uh, that he really likes. And he likes this painter because he says the painter is able to uh, and he says, distill the eternal from the transitory. And I just love that line so much, right? That's yeah. wonderful. I love Baudelaire. I remember reading that he liked to live. He wasn't he wasn't much of a traveler himself, but he liked to live near railway stations and ports because he liked the motion of people coming and going. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going to Tibet from I left from from Shenzhen. So that's a transcontinental railway journey. So I looked online and I found this um, hotel and it was called the Railway Hotel Shenzhen. And the location was right in the railway. And I thought, this is this is like Baudelaire. I that's can fantastic. just watch people coming and going. So I booked in to stay one night before I left. And it was inside this internal chamber of a building which had been set up for hong kong weekenders so it had like foot massage parlors and cantonese restaurants and karaoke but no view of the tracks i was so disappointed i i thought ah i, I all i could feel was a rumble every time a train left because it was, the building shook yeah, the romance of the rails is real. <laughs> well, Thomas, thank you again for your time and uh, best of luck to you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.